Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. It's a big week. It's a big month. Yeah, it's here. The NFL playoffs are here. It's captivating all of us. The ratings have been up. Games are about 16 million viewers, about a 5 to 7% increase over the previous year. I just got back and warmed up a little bit from Chicago. An incredible game, unless you're a Bears fan. You're an NFL fan. Clearly, it's the right time of year and the right action. Amy Tenery, editor of, of for, uh, for all of us digitally and Reuters. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm wondering, could you actually hear the football hit the upright uh, from doink. stadium? Double doink. Hear it, Double hear doink. it again. And the reason why you can hear it is because 60,000 people in Chicago have never been so quiet. But that is the beauty of the NFL. The NFL, clearly the juggernaut in American sports. And so I assume you watched it. And I assume you now see that the viewers uh, are not alone. You've increased viewership everywhere as far as the NFL is concerned. And what are your thoughts relative oh, to sure, that? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I uh, somewhat, I mean, uh, aside from the nail-biting end to that game, it was a somewhat underwhelming uh, slate of wildcard games this weekend. Um, to put it, um, I, I guess to put it half full, they were they were defensive games. Um, but, you know, I think the, the season overall has been tremendously exciting. And as you said, uh, we've seen viewership uh, really reverse this downward trend. Um, you know, uh, I think you were saying the season, uh, which ended last Sunday, averaged about uh, 15.8 million viewers um, for, for games. That's an improvement uh, over the 2017 season. Uh, certainly an improvement over the 2016 season, which was looking really grim. Um, what do you, to what do you attribute this, uh, this change in, in viewership? Is it simply that they're better games and more exciting season, or is there something else here going on? I think we're counting a little more sophisticated uh, ways because I'm not sure it was the end of the earth last year uh, when we didn't account for the 800,000 viewers that we say increased by watching this year. And so I think slowly, um, as as everybody has talked about, we're beginning to understand that people are watching on different devices. And now millennials are watching on smaller devices. All, all old of us, all old, old people who can't see are watching bigger devices. And at the end of the day, I think when you count apples to apples to apples, everybody's understanding that the NFL not only is here to stay, but the social issues are not behind us. But I think people are now watching for football's sake. And, and boy, has it been great. And it impacts off-field issues as well. Paul Tagliabu has been basically one of the most important people in the history of the NFL. He was commissioner for 17 years from 1989 to 2006. And so you could see the growth of his perspective in the game. Covington and Burling lawyer for 20 years, and he understands how important the business has been. We sat down with him about three weeks ago to get his perspective on television, on tickets, on globalization, on all of the issues which are really important. Former Commissioner Paul Tagliabue. Honored and humbled to have with me today somebody who is a has been a lawyer for 20 years, the commissioner for the NFL 
17 years, uh, retired emeritus, godfather, grandfather of pro football as we know it for 12 years and a friend for all of that time, Paul Tagliabue. How's that for an intro? <laughs> Thank you for being here, obviously. Uh, yeah, accurate and, and, and heartfelt. So 69, 20 years in, at Covington and Burling, um, you actually began the pioneering of corporate lawyer working for a league to Commissioner uh, David Stern, Gary Bettman. Talk about the transition. And at some point when you were a lawyer, did you ever think, boy, I'm going to run this league? To the last point, the answer is no. I never thought I would run the league. And, uh, you know, the transition was, was really fairly easy because I w had been immersed for 20 years as outside counsel. Yeah. But maybe more important, I had a great teacher and, and tutor in Pete Rozelle. So he, he, he let me know how to do things, and I followed his, his playbook. Over the last 20 years, if you invested in an NFL franchise, had the capability of doing it, your values would go up year over year, according to Forbes, about 11.6%. If you invested in the stock market, the Standard & Poor's, it would go up 4.5%, testament to the structure, but also your leadership. Go run the stock market. But more important than that is that you have a viable business, and its biggest metric for owners is increase in franchise values. What do you, what, what's your perspective on that? Well, my perspective is that we were fortunate in the, in the 90s mostly, but also in the beginning of the 21st century, to, to get some things in place that had to be put in place. One, one of the most important was this, this free agency and the salary cap. Another was uh, diversification in television, you know, moving beyond ABC, yeah. CBS, and NBC, and moving into cable in an intelligent way, leaving most of the games on broadcast television, but moving into with ESPN, moving with DirecTV into the satellite, and taking advantage of the technology that exploded in the 80s and 90s, and now the explosion is really accelerating. How about gambling? When I was working with you and we talked about how to put the core of stadium financing together, there was the admonition of, you know, we have a Chinese wall relative to, to uh, um, uh, uh, Indian land, Indian gaming, casino sponsorships, Vegas. There, the whole issue is now clearly blurred, and the Raiders are going to Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, where is the, where's the when was the tipping point when all of this was acceptable or was it gradual and, and how, where's, the, where's the ceiling? Are we going to have uh, uh, casinos in, in stadiums, for example? Well, I think the tipping point has come about because of a couple of things. Number one is the public acceptance of gambling. Uh, going back in time, there wasn't that level of public acceptance that there is today, sometimes for considerations of public policy, sometimes for personal considerations about what's a, what's a, what does gambling represent yeah. other than the tax on the, on the low-income people in the United States. But secondly, I think, is the technology and, and the transparency of gambling as it is today. And, you know, I've talked to people who said that the, the concern about athletes being induced to fix games or throw games, which happened to me when I was playing at Georgetown. We had a game where the other, the other side took money from bookies to not to beat the point spread. Uh, the feeling is that that can be managed now with the transparency and the data analysis that's available. So I think those two things on parallel tracks contributed to the tipping point, which the Supreme Court not only reached the tipping point, but hit it with a hammer with its recent decision saying that the this federal law that limited gambling to one state or two states was, was not legal. And look how prolific the revenues will be even relative to team valuations in the future. 
I hear a lot of different estimates. Some of them are sky high, some of them are not so sky high. It's going to depend on uh, whether there is congressional legislation and what kinds of restrictions and limitations are put on, put on the gambling on sports. Totally understood. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is an exclusive that you probably didn't know before, but I have visual evidence. Um, I found you in South Africa researching the viability of an NFL expansion team uh, in Cape Town. Is that, is that, is that correct? Well, you found me in Cape Town uh, in June of this year, and I was very interested in uh, football down there and uh, what that great game that Nelson Mandela yeah. talked about and, and the ability of sports, including football, to bring people together. But it was not uh, for an NFL experience. No, and of course I'm kidding, but we, we, it's a world coincidence. We found each other on respective uh, trip to Robben Island. But a segue into, uh, it was great, seeing you there, but the segue into expansion, uh, NFL in, in, in London, NFL in Canada, NFL in Mexico, um, NFL has one-off games. Talk about that generally. Well, you know, I think that the, uh, the one-off games are likely to continue for a while, maybe for a long while, because the idea of having a division uh, outside of the United States with long-distance travel I, I don't think is realistic. And it may not be realistic in the current environment to think of a league that's got more than 32 teams. So I think the, the London experiment might be extended to Europe. I've read about the possibility of games in Germany, which was the heart of NFL Europe when we had it. But uh, I think that uh, it's not gonna, you're not going to see divisions and conferences outside the United States. What you could see would be feeder leagues mm -hmm. in Canada, Mexico, and Europe over time. And I think that would be a great thing for the sport. Uh, World League of American Football 2, basically? Yes. Or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, okay. All right, let's go off the field for a couple of minutes. We talked uh, earlier in, in life about the new rules and what's happening and, and uh, you know, are we, are we tackling right, the roughing the passer issues? Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think you start, when you discuss those issues, you have to start with the competition committee. And the competition committee has been a great feature of the NFL structure. You know, some fans know it well. They could tell you who's on the competition committee. They can tell you when it meets. They probably read its reports today online. So, but I think that that's been a key to the growth of the game, to changes in the game, the swing from a, a game that was predominantly running to a game that's predominantly passing. And I, and I think the other huge factor, aside from how the competition committee has been an effective steward of the rules of the game, is the change in the athletes. Athletes today are very different from athletes 40 years ago, just in terms of size, skill, speed, and, 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 and a sense of invulnerability that comes from being looking like bionic men and the equipment that they're using. So you have to take all those things into account as you look at the rules changes. And you had some interesting comments about Don Shula's perspective on all of this. Tell that story. Well, you know, I read, <clears throat> just this week, I read uh, an article saying that the the rule that's controversial now about roughing the passer is the same rule that was adopted in 1995 by the competition committee. It's been in place for 23 years. Don Shula, in those days, when that kind of a rule change was debated, he used to say that the rule should be that the defensive player has to cradle the quarterback, not knock the quarterback down on the ground. And he would point to footage of Reggie White, one of the great Hall of Famers, tackling quarterbacks by cradling them and helping them stay up on their feet. That's a long way from where we are now. The cynics in those days used to say, well, that's because Marino can't run out of this pocket and escape being sacked. So that's why Don was looking for a rule that had the defensive players cradling. 
but but it's it's a tough issue, and I think I think where the league is now is is the right place, and people just have to understand why. Let's spend a few minutes because we have to um, talking about basketball, Georgetown. Uh, you congratulations, by the way. And nobody knows this, but but he is the the other thirty three on the Georgetown University basketball team. You're in the Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Well, number 33 is in the Hall of Fame, which was the number that I wore when I played at Georgetown. So who else? So somebody else wore it? It was also worn by Patrick Ewing, and ah. it only got in the Hall of Fame after he wore it, not me. Got it. Understood. But you had the rebound record for a long time at Georgetown. Yes, right? yes. And, and, and also, more relevant to this, through 2008 to 11, you were, you were chairman of the Board of Trustees and on the board for a long time. So you have a perspective of college athletics that few people do. Overall take of where college athletics is today and where it's going. Well, I think overall college, uh, college athletics are, are solid and uh, an important part of uh, the, you know, higher education. I think that the balance between academics and, and commerce could use some tweaking. And uh, as you know, I'm a member of the Knight Commission, and the Knight Commission has been working with the NCAA to, to try and have an influence on redirecting some of the revenues that come from athletics to, to broader purposes. And, and I think the other aspect that needs more attention is the scholarship system because the athletes especially in division one football and basketball are committing so much time now to athletics i think the scholarship should be more than four years it might be five, five six or even seven years and the athletes should be rewarded in ways that that take account of their academic performance not just their performance in football or basketball and that would apply to both men and women's sports what's the biggest change since you've left that you've noticed structurally on field off field whatever well i think the biggest change for the nfl and for the other professional and amateur sports for that matter the collegiate is is the way media has exploded and the and the way media has become uh available to everybody through through the internet technology and digital technology and, and the proliferation of devices that we referred to earlier the social media has become a major factor in the way people communicate at all levels, in all contexts, and, 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 it, and it exposes everybody to criticism on a targeted basis. And as we found out in the last year or two, it can also be manipulated and misused by foreign countries. So I think if, I think if you look at, as I said, when I left, the iPhone and, and social media like Facebook hadn't even started up. Now they, they dominate our daily lives. You can't be in a conversation without someone saying, "Well, let me look. Let me let me look at my phone and see what the answer to that is." That's a, that's a big change. If and when you sit down with Roger Goodell, do you basically tell him the game is in good hands, or do you say we've got to make the following changes? No, I my my perspective with Roger is I think the game is in good hands, and uh, you know the the game on the field is really strong, and that that's the critical thing, and that's a, that's a tribute to college game. It's a tribute to the players in the NFL who have not been changed by the money that's in the game today, the salaries they get. You still have people competing as if it's a life and death competition, which in some cases uh, for, for people's employment, it is yeah. can be the end of a career uh, because they get cut. But the game is fantastic. The, the number of young really good young quarterbacks right now is exciting. You know, a year or two ago, people used to say to me, why do we have Jacksonville and, and, and Tennessee on, on, in prime time? Well, now we know why we yeah, have Jacksonville yeah, and Tennessee yeah, in prime time with yeah, Bortles and, Mar yeah, and Mar yeah. Mariota. 
So I think that the way the, the talent is, is distributed and the way they compete on the field is fantastic, and that's what beginning and end of it. You've done okay with yourself for the first 70-plus years of your life. What about the next 70-plus? I'm looking at the next 70-plus, <laughs> not the next 70. <laughs> I, 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 I just want to keep looking at the life through the front windshield and not through the rearview mirror. That's been my philosophy since I retired, and I, I think it's been worthwhile. The game is in good hands, and I'm incredibly honored to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Paul has presided, as we know, over an industry that's increased about 11.5% every single year, which is better than the stock market. So he certainly knows what he was doing, and people attribute him to as one of the major reasons why the NFL's uh, franchise value now is well over a billion and a half dollars and heading northward. Amy, what did you take away from the interview? You know, I was um, I was surprised by his candor on one topic in particular, and that to me was the uh, the the international uh, ambitions of the NFL. Obviously, they've been having uh, games outside the U.S., notably London, Mexico City. Um, they've been on their radar, and I, I think at least my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was that they're sort of hosting these games outside the U.S. with this uh, global ambition, this idea that we're going to have global franchises in different countries. And uh, Paul Tagliabue was basically saying that that's just not realistic. And not only is it not realistic to have teams outside of the country, but it's not realistic to have more teams beyond the existing 32. So um, I guess I'm curious for, for your take, A, do you agree with him on that? Do you think it really is unrealistic to expand beyond the U.S.? And if so, what is the NFL's actual goal here with having these one-offs in, you know, in London? Ultimate irony, uh, we ran into each other in respective family vacations in June on Robbins Island at the Mandela uh, Monument in Cape Town. And he was quipping that we're looking to expand to Cape Town as our next NFL franchise. Of course, he was kidding. And the irony <laughs> is that, that he's a guy who uh, has talked about London as a brand building exercise. And I think Roger Goodell understands that as well. The real answer is Mexico, Canada, England, to some extent, China, Eastern Europe, all of these places that have some degree of football, some modest television, some expat following but I don't think the NFL feels like they're in a rush to have a franchise over in London or otherwise, like pundits talk about, because basically the 32 increases the value to those who are currently own the 32. But also, it doesn't mean let's not go internationally. Let's just say it's more important to build the brand, to generate some television revenues to generate some uh, merchandise appeal and to have more people think about the NFL. And you don't need a regular franchise to get that done. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I, I mean, you make a good point. I mean, the the financial strength of the 32 franchises is is incumbent upon their not being more than 32. So you I mean, you do make a good point that if, if they can get more you know TV viewers abroad and, and that's you know, that's that, that raises a whole other host of issues about uh, media rights and all of that. But I, I think, yeah, that's a good point. If you can develop a fan base, then there's money there. Um, and I guess it remains to be seen, you know, maybe in the next 20 years if we if we start seeing. I don't know. Well, and, and you had a you had a you had a second perspective about Paul, I think, uh, as far as the media was concerned. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, no, that's a really good. That's another point. Um, when he was talking about the biggest changes, um, 
you know, from when he stepped down as commissioner in 06 was this uh, rise of social media and also specifically smartphones. And now we've seen the NFL embrace these platforms to a certain extent. We've seen them partner with Amazon Prime, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, and I think that's a step in the right direction, but it's certainly been a bit of a, a, a a trickle when I, I, in my opinion, if you're trying to rope in millennials and Gen Z, it needs to to be more of a, a flood. Um, so what's going on here? I mean, why why is the NFL not being more aggressive in getting these media rights uh, to uh, different platforms and, and available on, on different devices? Talk to me in a year and a half. And the reason I say that is because I think they've done a masterful job at slowly insinuating Facebook, uh, uh, Snapchat, uh, Twitter uh, as mainstream participants to try to work the bugs out before the next round of major TV negotiations where the big four, NBC, ABC, Fox and and uh, uh, CBS uh, will all bid on various packages. But so will all of these what you might call them, these second rate companies. They are not second rate. And what they're going to be used as is leverage to increase the value of the television dollars even more. And today, when revenue at a team averaged $427 million a team increases because television rights will go up because you have the leverage now where you have more entities wanting to bid than television rights available to bid for them. So I think what they're doing is increasing the opportunities for business leverage as well. So Paul Tagliabue obviously... Uh, we've known him for years. He says in the last 12 years, no second guessing. He's increased the value of franchises. Frankly, very happy with his legacy. And the NFL should be happy with his legacy, too. Ricaro, Amy Tenery, speak with you soon. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. Our producer, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Freddie Joyner. Assistance provided by Carlos Waddick, Tanner Simpkins, Jesse Leeds, and Jamie Swimmer and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Ricardo. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.